Chapter forty eight of the Woodlanders. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. The Woodlanders by Thomas Hardy. Chapter forty eight. All the evening Melbury had been coming to his door saying, I wonder where in the world that girl is. Never in all my born days did I know her to bide out like this. Surely she said she was going into the garden to get some parsley. Melbury searched the garden, the parsley bed in the orchard, but could find no trace of her, and then he made inquiries at the cottages of such of his workmen as had not gone to bed, avoiding tangs because he knew the young people were to rise early to leave. In these inquiries one of the men's wives somewhat incautiously let out the fact that she had heard a scream in the wood, though from which direction she could not say. This set Melbury's fears on end. He told the men to light lanterns, and, headed by himself, they started, Creedle following at the last moment with quite a burden of grapnels and ropes, which he could not be persuaded to leave behind, and the company being joined by the hollow-turner and the man who kept the cider-house as they went along. They explored the precincts of the village, and in a short time lighted upon the man-trap. This discovery simply added an item of fact without helping their conjectures, but Melbury's indefinite alarm was greatly increased when, holding a candle to the ground, he saw in the teeth of the instrument some frayings from Grace's clothing. No intelligence of any kind was gained till they met a woodman from Delborough, who said that he had seen a lady answering to the description her father gave of Grace, walking through the wood on a gentleman's arm in the direction of Sherton. "'Was he clutching her tight?' said Melbury. "'Well, rather,' said the man. "'Did she walk lame?' "'Well, tis true, her head hung over towards him a bit.' Creedle groaned tragically. Melbury, not suspecting the presence of Fitzpiers, coupled this account with the man-trap and the scream. He could not understand what it all meant, but the sinister event of the trap made him follow on. Accordingly they bore away towards the town, shouting as they went, and in due course emerged upon the highway. Nearing Sherton Abbas, the previous information was confirmed by other strollers, though the gentleman's supporting arm had disappeared from these later accounts. At last they were so near to Sherton that Melbury informed his faithful followers that he did not wish to drag them farther at so late an hour, since he could go on alone and inquire if the woman who had been seen really were Grace. But they would not leave him alone in his anxiety, and trudged onward till the lamplight from the town began to illuminate their fronts. At the entrance to the high street they got fresh scent of the pursued, but coupled with the new condition that the lady in the costume described had been going up the street alone. "'Faith, I believe she's mesmerised, or walking in her sleep,' said Melbury. However, the identity of this woman with Grace was by no means certain, but they plodded along the street. Perkham, the hairdresser who had despoiled Marty of her tresses, was standing at his door, and they duly put inquiries to him. "'Ah, how's the little Hintock folk by now?' he said before replying. "'Never have I been over there since one winter night some three years ago, and then I lost myself in finding it. How can you live in such a one-eyed place? Grey Hintock is bad enough, but little Hintock, the bats and owls would drive me melancholy mad. It took two days to raise me spirits to their true pitch again after that night I went there.' "'Mr. Melbury, sir, as a man that's put money by, why not retire and live here and see something of the world?' 
The responses at last given by him to their queries guided them to the building that offered the best accommodation in Sherton, having been enlarged contemporaneously with the construction of the railway, namely the Earl of Wessex Hotel. Leaving the others without, Melbury made prompt inquiry here. His alarm was lessened, though his perplexity was increased when he received a brief reply that such a lady was in the house. "'Do you know if it's my daughter?' asked Melbury. The waiter did not. "'Do you know the lady's name?' Of this, too, the household was ignorant, the hotel having been taken by brand-new people from a distance. They knew the gentleman very well by sight, and had not thought it necessary to ask him to enter his name. "'Oh, the gentleman appears again now,' said Melbury to himself. "'Well, I want to see the lady,' he declared. A message was taken up, and after some delay the shape of Grace appeared descending round the bend of the staircase, looking as if she lived there, but in other respects rather guilty and frightened. "'Why, what the name?' began her father. "'I thought you went out to get parsley.' "'Oh, yes, I did, but it is all right,' said Grace in a flurried whisper. "'I am not alone here. I am here with Edgar. It is entirely owing to an accident, father.' "'Edgar? An accident?' How does he come here? I thought he was two hundred miles off. Yes, so he is. I mean, he has got a beautiful practice two hundred miles off. He has bought it with his own money, some that came to him. But he travelled here, and I was nearly caught in a man-trap. And that's how it is I am here. We were just thinking of sending a messenger to let you know. Melbury did not seem to be particularly enlightened by this explanation. You were caught in a man-trap? Yes, my dress was. That's how it arose. Edgar is upstairs in his own sitting-room, she went on. He would not mind seeing you, I am sure. Oh, Faith, I don't want to see him. I have seen him too often already. I'll see him another time, perhaps, if it's to oblige ye. He came to see me. He wanted to consult me about this large partnership I speak of, as it is very promising. Oh, I am glad to hear it, said Melbury dryly. A pause ensued, during which the inquiring faces and whitey-brown clothes of Melbury's companions appeared in the doorway. "'Then ain't you coming home with us?' he asked. "'I, I think not,' said Grace, blushing. Ah, "'Very well. You are your own mistress,' he returned in tones which seemed to assert otherwise. "'Good night,' and Melbury retreated towards the door. "'Don't be angry, father,' she said, following him a few steps. I have done it for the best. I am not angry, though it is true I have been a little misled in this. However, good night. I must get home along. He left the hotel, not without relief, for to be under the eyes of strangers while he conversed with his lost child had embarrassed him much. His search-party, too, had looked awkward here, having rushed to the task of investigation, some in their shirt-sleeves, others in their leather aprons, and all much stained, just as they had come from their work of barking, and not in their shirt and marketing attire, while Creedle, with his ropes and grapnels and air of impending tragedy, had added melancholy to gawkiness. "'Now, neighbours, said Melbury on joining them, "'as it is getting late, we'll leg it home again as fast as we can.' I ought to tell you that there has been some mistake, some arrangement entered into between Mr. and Mrs. Fitzpiers which I didn't quite understand. An important practice in the Midland Counties has come to him, which made it necessary for her to join him to-night, so she says. That's all it was, and I'm sorry I dragged you out." "'Well,' said the hollow-turner, 
Here be we six miles from home, and night-time, and not a hoss or four-footed creeping thing to her name. I say we'll have a mussel and a drop of summer to strengthen our nerves before we vamp all the way back again. My throat's as dry as a kex. What do you say, so's? They all concurred in the need for this course, and proceeded to the antique and lampless back street, in which the red curtain of the three tons was the only radiant object. As soon as they had stumbled down into the room, Melbury ordered them to be served, when they made themselves comfortable by the long table, and stretched out their legs upon the herring-bone sand of the floor. Melbury himself, restless as usual, walked to the door while he waited for them, and looked up and down the street. "'I'd gear a good shake if she were my maid, pretending to go out in the garden, and leading folk a twelve-mile traipse that have got to get up at five o'clock to-morrow.' said a bar-cripper who, not working regularly for Melbury, could afford to indulge in strong opinions. "'I don't speak so warm as that,' said the hollow-turner. "'But if tis right for couples to make a country talk about their separating, and excite the neighbours, and then make fools of them like this, why, I haven't stood upon one leg for five and twenty year.' All his listeners knew that when he alluded to his foot lay in these enigmatic terms, the speaker meant to be impressive, and Creedle chimed in with, "'Ah!' Young women do wax wanton in these days. Why couldn't she abode with her father, and been faithful? Poor Creedle was thinking of his old employer. But this deceiving of folks is nothing unusual in matrimony, said Farmer Bawtree. I know the man and a wife, faith, I don't mind owning, as there's no strangers here, that the pair were my own relations. They'd be at it that hot one hour that you'd hear the poker and the tongs and the bellows and the warming-pan flee across the house with the movements of their vengeance, and the next hour you'd hear them singing the spotted cow together, as peaceable as two holy twins, yes, and very good voices they had, and would strike in like professional ballad-singers to one another's support in the high notes. And I know the woman, and the husband of her went away for four-and-twenty year, said the bark-ripper. And one night he came home when she was sitting by the fire, and thereupon he sat down himself on the other side in the chimney-corner. Well, says she, have you any news? I don't know as I have, says he. Have you? No, says she, except that my daughter by my second husband was married last month, which was a year after I was made a widow by him. Oh, anything else, says he? No, says she. And there they sat, one on each side of the chimney-corner and were found by the neighbours sound asleep in their chairs, not having known what to talk about at all. "'Well, I don't care who the man is,' said Creedle. "'They required a good deal to talk about, and that's true. It won't be the same with these. He's such a project, you see, and she's such a wonderful scholar, too.' "'What women do know nowadays,' observed the hollow-turner. "'You can't deceive them as you could do in my time.' "'What they know then was not small.' said John Upjohn, always a good deal more than the men. Why, when I was courting my wife that is now, the skilfulness that she would show in keeping me on her pretty side as she walked was beyond all belief. Perhaps you've noticed that she's got a pretty side to her face as well as a plain one. I can't say I've noticed it in particular much, said the hollow-turner blandly. Well, continued Upjohn, not disconcerted, she has. All women under the sun be prettier one side than t'other. And, as I was saying, the pains she would take to make me walk on her pretty side were unending. I warrant that whether she were going with the sun or against the sun, uphill or downhill, in the wind or the luth, that wart of hers was always toward the hedge, and that dimple towards me. 
There was I, too simple to see her wheelings and turnings, and she so artful, though two years younger, that she could lead me with a cotton thread like a blind ram, for that was in the third climate of her courtship. No, I don't think women have got cleverer, for there was never otherwise. "'How many climates may there be in courtship, Mr. Upjohn?' inquired a youth, the same who had assisted at Winterbourne's Christmas party. Five, from the coldest to the hottest. Leastwise there was five in mine. "'Can you give us the chronicle of them, Mr. Upjohn?' "'Yes, I could. I could, certainly. But tis quite unnecessary. They'll come to you by nature, young man, too soon for your own good.' "'At present Mrs. Fitzpiers can lead the doctor as your missus could lead you.' the hollow-turner remarked. She's got em quite tame. But how long to last I can't say. I happened to be setting a wire in the top of my garden one night when he met her on the other side of the hedge, and the way she queened it and fenced and kept that poor feller at a distance was enough to freeze your blood. I should never have supposed it was such a girl. Melbury now returned into the room, and the men having declared themselves refreshed, they all started on the homeward journey, which was by no means cheerless under the rays of the high moon. Having to walk the whole distance, they came by a footpath rather shorter than the highway, though difficult except to those who knew the country well. This brought them by way of Great Hintock, and passing the churchyard they observed, as they walked, a motionless figure standing by the gate. "'I think it was Marty South.' said the hollow-turner, parenthetically. "'I think it was. I was always a lonely maid,' said Upjohn, and they passed on homeward and thought of the matter no more. It was Marty, as they had supposed. That evening had been the particular one of the week upon which Grace and herself had been accustomed to privately deposit flowers on Giles's grave, and this was the first occasion since his death eight months earlier on which Grace had failed to keep her appointment. Marty had waited in the road just outside Little Hintock, where her fellow pilgrim had been wont to join her, till she was weary, and at last, thinking that Grace had missed her and gone on alone, she followed the way to Great Hintock, but saw no Grace in front of her. It got later, and Marty continued her walk till she reached the churchyard gate, but still no Grace. Yet her sense of comradeship would not allow her to go on to the grave alone and still thinking the delay had been unavoidable, she stood there with her little basket of flowers in her clasped hands, and her feet chilled by the damp ground, till more than two hours had passed. She then heard the footsteps of Melbury's men, who presently passed on their return from the search. In the silence of the night Marty could not help hearing fragments of their conversation, from which she acquired a general idea of what had occurred, and where Mrs. Fitzpiers then was. Immediately they had dropped down the hill, she entered the churchyard, going to a secluded corner behind the bushes, where rose the unadorned stone that marked the last bed of Giles Winterbourne. As this solitary and silent girl stood there in the moonlight, a straight, slim figure, clothed in a plaitless gown, the contours of womanhood so undeveloped as to be scarcely perceptible, the marks of poverty and toil effaced by the misty hour, she touched sublimity at points and looked almost like a being who had rejected with indifference the attribute of sex for the loftier quality of abstract humanism. She stooped down and cleared away the withered flowers that Grace had herself laid there the previous week, and put her fresh ones in their place. "'Now, my own, own love,' she whispered, "'you are mine, and only mine, for she has forgot ye at last, although for her you died.' 
But I, whenever I get up, I'll think of ye. And whenever I lie down, I'll think of ye. Whenever I plant the young larches, I'll think that none can ever plant as you planted. And whenever I split a gad, and whenever I turn the cider ring, I'll say no one could do it like you. If I ever forget your name, let me forget home and heaven. But no, no, my love, I can never forget ye. For you was a good man, and did good things. End of chapter 48 That is the end of The Woodlanders by Thomas Hardy